spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Connecting you to the biggest stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. Your safe haven from Game of Thrones spoilers, episode 177 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham, and I'll be honest, it feels like all I've been doing lately is streaming, streaming, streaming. I mean, so much good stuff is coming to streaming services right before fall TV starts. I mean, we talked to Marco Ramirez, showrunner for Marvel's Defenders, on Netflix last week, and thanks to him for coming on the show. This week, though, I'll have my spoiler-filled review of all eight episodes of The Defenders. I'll give you my impression on the season as a whole, what I thought. And it looks like there's been a lot of varying opinions online, so that should be very, very interesting to see where mine lines up. This week on the show, streaming once again, because I'm talking to Griffin Newman, who plays Arthur on The Tick, which of course is streaming now on Amazon Prime Video, had some very interesting things to say about this first season. Spoiler free, by the way, so you won't have to worry about any spoilers for The Tick if you haven't been able to watch or binge watch the season yet. Don't worry, not going to spoil anything there for you, but we will talk to him about the character of Arthur and of course relationships that he has on the show and things like that. A couple of other interesting things as well. And going to do something a little bit different, as a matter of fact. I'll give you my spoiler-free review of the first season of The Tick right after the interview, so you want to stick around for that. For nerd news this week, yep, it was Gamescom, so we'll talk about some of the news that came out of that and much, much more. But up next, it's time to review some more comics. What we're reading on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, this is writer Kyle Higgins, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Time to grab that long box tablet or your laptop, whatever you're reading on. It's time for what we're reading and another DC book to lead off this week because it's a very interesting concept. It's Nightwing, the New Order, number one of six, written by Kyle Higgins. Trevor McCarthy does the art and the cover. Dean White does the colors and Clayton Cowles does the lettering. I got to get on this cover for just a second. It looks like the propaganda poster. You see Nightwing posing there. It's It sets the tone for this issue very much so. No real spoilers in this review, but I will say this. This might be a tiny bit of a spoiler. At the very beginning, we find out that superpowers are outlawed in the United States now. And as a matter of fact, there are inhibitors to prevent them. And Nightwing is kind of the leader of this task force. He's the commander, actually, for the task force that polices this and makes sure that there are no superpowers and things like that. And that's where the story gets really, really interesting. This is not at all in continuity, by the way. This is very much a standalone story, and that's kind of what makes it interesting. It's that perspective of, you know, you can't help but as a fan wonder, you know, are the heroes causing a lot of the mess or is it the villains? Did the heroes create the villains and such? And this kind of explores that a little bit and you see Nightwing still kind of being Nightwing and that's one of the things that I love that Kyle Higgins did with this issue this is very much an older Nightwing this takes place in the future of 2040 or around there I believe so you see a much older Nightwing but he's still kind of himself personality wise even though he's a little bit older so to keep that kind of perspective even with the burden that he has on himself right now I think was really really important I love that Kyle did that And you see him in charge and leading this task force. And even though we've seen him in charge before, this just, it feels out of place. And I don't mean that in a bad way. It makes you, this whole issue really, honestly, 
made me feel uncomfortable. And that's not a bad thing. You just see the things that the Dick Grayson is doing and you know it's him, but you don't feel like it's him kind of thing. So even though his personality is the same, you're seeing him making different decisions it's, and it's kind of very out of character in a good way. And we do see him interact with characters that we know and love from before. As a matter of fact, one, I was a little bit surprised of given the time period that it was in, that he was interacting in. And we do find out the fates of some other Justice League characters in this book, one in particular that's very, very close to him, that kind of, you'll be surprised how the wheels are being greased, I guess is the best way I could put it. And there's something else that di- that's different about Dick Grayson's life as well. And I, to, in order to talk about this book, I have to spoil this part. He has a son. And in this book, the relationship with his son is is very much a part of what the story is going to be going forward That much I can tell you. I won't tell you why or anything like that. But one thing I didn't like about this issue was was the very, very end. And it's kind of a trope that we've seen in a lot of TV shows and movies and comics. And I won't go into exactly what it is. But at the same time, even even in seeing that, it didn't bother me. Because this, this comic is written so well. And the story's laid out so well. It makes you want to push forward. Because... Not only are you thinking as a reader and, and somebody who's loved this character and a bunch of these characters think, okay, how bad is this going to get and how uncomfortable is this going to get with me watching Dick Grayson be this guy? But not only that, it's like, okay, where's the story going to go in spite of this revelation? So it didn't even really bother me at the end. And there are questions regarding that as well that go much deeper than what it actually is. And I know that's me tap dancing a little bit, trying not to spoil this issue, but that's the best I can. I'm not going to just flat out give away what it is, but you'll see what I'm talking about when you get to the end. One thing I really loved about this is the art by Trevor McCarthy. It it looks like a 1980s DC comic. I loved that so, so much. And you get kind of that look from Nightwing, even though he's a little, again, he's a little bit older. And one thing I think any Nightwing fan can appreciate is the long haired look for Nightwing, so you get that as well, and you see that on the cover right away, so again, that's not a spoiler. So, I'm going to give this a poll. This is something I'm very, very excited about, despite the ending, which I'm not even really upset about, because like I said, everything building up to that was so amazing, and there's so many other things to focus on as well, even though that's going to be a huge focal point of the story. I feel like there's so many other things that are interesting that that doesn't bother me, and it and it's just because it's been done before doesn't mean it's not going to be interesting either. So I'm very much looking forward to where that's going. Moving on to Image Comics, they had a new one this week called The Hard Place Number One, which is written by Doug Wagner. Nick Rummel does the art, Charlie Kirchhoff does colors, and Frank Venkovic does the letters. Now this is basically about a wheelman named AJ who used to work for one of the top crime bosses, went to prison. Now he's out and he's trying to put his life back together. But here's where it. The, the trouble starts really right away because you're seeing him in prison and getting out of prison. And yeah, that's a good start. But there's no real feeling for, you know, they say his time was hard inside. Okay, why? We, we don't get that sense. We don't get any sense of real feeling for AJ's character at all in the beginning of this book. There's no real reason to, to sympathize or attach yourself with him. And even the people that he meets along the way. And some of this might be kind of predictable, like the stops that you would make if you'd been somewhere for a long time and hadn't been back home in a while, what's some of the first things that you would do? And I think that that, that's something that's pretty obvious that's not spoiling anything. Just think about the things that you would do 
if you were gone somewhere for a long time. That that kind of happens in this book. And you see this relationship between him and another person whose relationship, they don't tell you who this person is to AJ, but definitely very, very close. But even then, you don't really get the sense of, you're like, yeah, they're close, but you don't get what their past is. And maybe maybe you don't need that to get into this book, but you kind of expect, especially based on the cover, there's going to be, you know, some cars involved and maybe a lot of action as well. And and you don't really get that either. And you find out a little bit about his old life and who he used to work for. But, but again, you, you see the, you see the big bad, I guess you could call him. And, and you don't really get that sense of, wow, this guy's, this guy's terrible or anything like that. I mean, you see some certain things, but for me, I just kind of meh, just brushed it off for whatever reason. Maybe maybe that's me desensitized. I don't know, but it, it just didn't strike for me. And, and going throughout the issue and seeing the troubles that he does have with being out just did not resonate for me. And even the, the ending, when you get towards the end and you know something's about to happen, it, it just did not resonate for me. And, and you see what happens at the end, and I'm thinking, okay, yeah, so you kind of see where this is going and maybe it'll be a problem, but it doesn't really, I don't feel for the main character. And I don't, I did not get that feel from the very beginning. And I mean, the first issue of a new series, you kind of want to have that. And I just didn't feel it. That's just my personal opinion. I wasn't feeling it. So this is the, the art wasn't that great either. I mean, it was good. The cover was very, very good, but the art throughout wasn't something that would make me say, okay, the story wasn't great, but I'll stick around for the art because I would put the story and the art around the same level. So this is a drop for me. I'm, this is not one that I will continue reading, I don't think. IDW does have another versus comic, though, that I wanted to talk about. Rom versus Transformers number two. Of course, number one was out last month, written by John Barber and Christos Gage. Alex Milne does the art, Josh Perez does the colors, and Tom B. Long does the letters. And one thing you got to love about this book, before you even turn the page, I mean, you've got Rom and the Soul Star Knights, you've got Diorates, you've got Starscream being Starscream, Ultra Magnus being Ultra Magnus, and then Bumblebee. It's just something that makes you want to read it if you're a fan of these Hasbro characters anyway. And you saw, this is a little bit of a spoiler if you haven't read it, about Starscream and his search for the Energon Synthesizer. But what this issue actually does, and this is interesting, they would decide to do this as they jump back to kind of see the events that have led up to this. You see Starscream talking to the dire race and, and maybe forging that unholy alliance, as you might call it. So you see where that's kind of going and and you see that maybe it wasn't that easy for this team up to happen. That's that's kind of what I'll say without spoiling anything. And you see the relationship between Bumblebee and Ultra Magnus, which again, Bumblebee's kind of like the peacemaker because blast off is in there as well. So he's kind of like the peacemaker, but at the same time, they're on this mission to find out what happened to this ship that was down and why the Decepticons were interested in it. Of course, you already kind of know that from the first issue. But here's the thing. You want to talk about action. In this book, and this is not a spoiler either, everyone is fighting everyone. It's like nobody is off limits in this book. And when you've got a couple of teams of baddies that team up together... That always works out perfectly, right? So there's a little something that goes on there. But one particular panel in this book, let me tell you, I want to spoil this so bad, but I'm not going to do it. Let's just say I saw something from the Dire Wraiths that I never thought I would see. And bravo to John Barber, Christos Gage, Alex Milne, the entire team 
on this book, even the lettering in this particular panel from Tom Belong just shoots right off the page. And I go, oh, my God. First of all, how is that even possible? Second of all, what am I seeing right now? And then the next couple of pages after that is just an all out, just psychotic brawl that I just love. And you want to talk about this being a versus comic. It very much reads as everyone versus absolutely everyone else down to almost the very end when you kind of get the, the climax of what happens in this previous point in time before the first issue happens and you go, well, you know, where do you go from here? Where does this alliance or not alliance? How do these guys eventually come together? You really get that question in your mind when you see that last page and this being a versus comic, you don't really know. And just the beautiful, beautiful art throughout this book by Alex Millen, a fantastic job. And you also have kind of an outcast in this issue that Barbara and Gage create, which should be obvious from the first issue. But again, if you haven't read either issue, I really don't want to spoil that for you either. But you've got this outcast story. Then you've got this all out brawl going on. You've got Starscream trying to get this lasting energy source in the universe. And of course, you want to stop Starscream from doing pretty much anything that he wants to do. And you know Starscream is going to do pretty much whatever the hell he wants to anyway. So there's that factor as well. So this is a pull for me. I mean, I went back and read the first issue as well. Here's the deal. You probably want to go back and read the first issue anyway, just because it gives you the nice backstory between what was going on with the council and the relationship between Rom and Stardrive and how she kind of factors in to this whole story. So that's what makes the first issue so important. Even this issue, even though this issue kind of takes you back and shows you how this whole versus thing ended up happening in the first place. That's going to do it for what we're reading up next. My spoiler filled review of the defenders from Netflix is up next on the down and nerdy podcast. Hey listeners, this is Peter Shinkoda from daredevil. I play noble and you are listening to down and nerdy podcast. Last week, we talked to Defender showrunner Marco Ramirez. This week, it is my spoiler-filled review of Marvel's Defenders on Netflix. It was the thing that we've been waiting for forever. Everyone kind of coming together. But one of the smart things that they did right off the bat is not have everybody together right away, which I thought was really smart. I mean, you saw everybody was kind of doing their own thing. Like Matt Murdock was doing pro bono work. He's not Daredevil anymore. Jessica Jones is just trying to get over what happened with Kilgrave. Luke Cage gets out of prison and does things with uh, Rosario Dawson's character on the best built kitchen table everywhere. I don't know where Claire Temple buys her furniture, but uh, I'm going to go buy my furniture there from now on because clearly it lasts and last. That's where you need to get your furniture. If you saw that first episode, you know what I'm talking about. And then you've got Iron Fist, who of course is dealing with the guilt with what happened in Kun Lung at the end of Iron Fist. And we'll get a lot into Iron Fist here in just a second. But you see that not everybody comes together and you see how they come together in unique ways, like Iron Fist meeting Luke Cage because of he was investigating something Luke Cage was. It was going on with one of the neighborhood kids in Harlem, so he was checking on that. Jessica Jones seeing how Matt Murdock ends up being her attorney thanks to Foggy who passes a case off to him. It was this linear progression of how everybody met everybody else. And then the dots just started to connect, even through Claire Temple, who kind of brought Iron Fist and Luke Cage together after their altercation, which was a pretty epic fight, by the way. 
So the way that everybody came together, I thought was really, really smart. It would have been really easy just throw everybody together in the beginning and start telling the story of how they were going to defeat the hand, which you pretty much knew was going to be the main antagonist in this entire thing, or at least we thought they were going to be the main antagonist in, in this entire thing. Because you saw Sigourney Weaver as Alexandra, and you kind of figure, okay, what sort of a role is she going to play? How is she associated with the hand? And fast forward a few episodes, and we find out she's one of the five fingers of the hand. So that kind of broadened things. And then you find out, okay, she's dying. Well, there's more to it than that because the hand is after always one thing, eternal life. They know where it is, but they need the iron fist to go get it. So that kind of becomes the basis of what's going on is I'm trying to capture Danny Rand and open this doorway one way or another. They know the iron fist can open it. And of course they use the last of their eternal life to bring Electronachios back to life. And that kind of causes some friction between the rest of the hand and Alexandra's character. And that tension goes through future episodes, but little did she know something that was going to be happening. But I just love how everybody came together for this one common goal of stopping the hand. And the other thing I love too, you want to talk about friction is the fact that this team didn't really get along. I mean, other than things being awkward between Luke Cage and Jessica Jones for obvious reasons, you had, you know, Matt Murdock not really wanting to share anything that was going on with, with him or about the hand with Jessica or Luke. And then come to find out that Danny Rand knows plenty about the hand and Danny's surprised that Matt knows and nobody seems to trust Matt right off the bat no matter what so it was it was interesting to see them work through that friction and those trust issues and then you bring stick into the fold and you know how stick is and you know he's not the most honest dude in the world he's not going to tell you the whole truth all the time either so i don't think that helped matt murdoch's cause having stick there because th that really didn't make them trust them anymore and then you've got foggy and karen trying to pull matt out of the whole daredevil thing just like they had done before and it looked like he was doing well and then he wasn't so one of the big parts of this story was, other than Iron Fist, was the uncertainty of Matt Murdock, what he wanted to do. And we saw him struggle with, do I go back to this daredevil life because I've missed it, but I feel bad that I've missed it. Do I keep doing the pro bono work? Is this the kind of stuff, is this my way that I'm supposed to be helping people? And then on the flip side of that, then there's Iron Fist. And you want to talk about the redemption of Iron Fist. The defenders did that. Not only did we have Danny Rand dealing with what happened in Kunlung and having to, you know, make his peace with that, his relationship with Colleen Wing, you also found out that he was one of the main focal points that the hand needed, and the fight scenes were just so much cleaner with Iron Fist in The Defenders. His character just worked so much better with other strong characters around him. The chemistry between him and Mike Coulter and Luke Cage, that relationship just worked. Whether they were fighting or once they stopped fighting, it just worked. So you kind of see what was wrong with Iron Fist and the reasons that we didn't like it originally on the show. We thought that it might be because of who was running the show. And now I think that that's brought to bear easily. You kind of see that once Danny Rand is put in the right, and once this character and once Finn Jones is put in the right position with the right people around him, he can make Iron Fist work. So that is one thing that they did very, very well. And that was redeem Iron Fist. And the fact that they made fun of him saying he was the dumbest Iron Fist ever and all this other stuff. They can say that they didn't do that on purpose all they want. It felt like it was on purpose, and it was hilarious. that they'd... Now, there was less of that as the episodes wore on, but I thought it was funny that they just kept making fun of him over and over and over again. 
But at the same time, they also made good on it. They also made him a strong, strong character. And then Colleen Wing, they even improved on her character as well. And seeing her meet Misty Knight was a big fanboy moment for me. That was a long time coming, so I finally, I'm glad that we finally got that. But let's talk about Electra Nachos for a second. Let's talk about the Black Sky. She has this kind of weird mother-daughter relationship with Sigourney Weaver's character, Alexandria. Alexandra really believes in the Black Sky, and she said at one point... This is what I felt like I was put here to do. I was put here to raise the black sky, not necessarily be one of the five fingers of the hand. It was supposed to be you and I going together through this. And you see her struggle, Electra, with that. With She knows that she's the black sky, and she knows that this is what her purpose is. But at the same time, she still has the flashes of her old life as Electra Nachos and the reasons that she's not killing Matt Murdock, which I thought was really interesting. The chemistry between... Elodie Young and Charlie Cox as Matt Murdock and Electra Nachos. It is just, you could cut it with a knife, man. It is just such a complicated and beautiful relationship between the two of them at the same time. And we'll talk about the end fight scene and all that in just a second. But just their chemistry together is off the charts good. And then you see the chemistry between her and Sigourney Weaver as well. It was just really this... This awkward relationship. And then episode six, big, big spoiler, Electric kills her, claims her name as Electra Nachios, and says to the hand, you work for me now, and sort of takes over as one of this eternal life. She sort of takes control of the hand by force, or at least that's the way it looks anyway. Not necessarily the case from the hand's perspective, I'm sure, but that was the way it looked for us. So you've got, they finally do capture the Iron Fist. I don't want to go too much into every little detail of the show here, but when they do capture the Iron Fist, you see everybody come together and kind of rally around. Let's go get Danny. Let's stop the hand. Let's save New York kind of thing. And then just the epic battles underground. And once they open that door to Kun Lun, and you think that they're right there on the verge of it, you get the epic battles between different members of the Five Fingers of the Hand and different members of the Defenders team. One of the best fights, I think, in that whole thing was actually between Colleen Wing, Jessica Henwick, and Bakudo. I actually think that that one had some real emotion to it, given their past in Iron Fist, and she was actually a part of the hand at one point before she found out, and Danny opened her eyes to that, and she leaves. There was still that tension there when they were fighting, and and Colleen kind of coming into her own, and and I love that the that the showrunners and the writers gave Colleen Wing that moment. She really didn't have help. I mean, Claire was there, and of course Misty comes in at some point, and we get that Misty Night moment. Spoiler alert: where she loses her arm from the you know right there from the comics. So we get that moment. But you gave Colleen Wing the opportunity, not as one of the main four members of the Defenders, to take on one of the fingers of the hand of Bakudo by herself to empower a, just for the sake of this discussion, let's call her a secondary character. To empower a secondary character like that shows that everyone had a ton of faith in Colleen Wing and in Misty Knight too, because then there's the undertone of that and that Misty Knight's kind of half trying to do her job as a cop, half trying to trust Luke Cage, and half trying to trust Claire Temple, and knowing that they want to do what's right for this city as well. So she's got her job on the line, and then she ends up having this traumatic injury at the end, and you're left with this moment of she doesn't know what her next move is going to be. So they really had a lot of empowering moments for her as well. But my favorite character out of this season of The Defenders, and I have kind of think my favorite character overall 
of the four right now has to be Jessica Jones. There's just something about Kristen Ritter, and I could not have been more wrong about her when they first cast her as Jessica Jones. I wasn't sure, and I was so, so wrong about that. The way that she just interacted with every member in the in the back-and-forth kind of relationship she had with Daredevil and Matt Murdock, making fun of him when he had, this, when he had her scarf as his mask at first, and then she sees the costume and says scarf looked better. I love that. Just her I-don't-give-a-shit attitude that she has. It's just so great, but at the same time, she's vulnerable. She's wounded, and you see that with her sister, Trish. You see how vulnerable and wounded that she is, and at the same time, she's still a badass, and she's still funny. So overall, I think Jessica Jones kind of has the total package here, and that's not a, a knock on any of the other characters, and it's just that she plays it so, so well that she just ended up being my favorite character. When all was said and done, but my favorite scene, I think, overall was one of the scenes at the end between Daredevil and Elektra. And it was that last fight scene that they have. Not only was it a good fight scene, it was an emotional fight scene. It was like you could cut the sexual tension with a knife at the same time during that fight scene. It was just so emotional and epic and moving. And then the building collapses down around them and they kind of want to die together. And there's that emotional moment but at the same time one of the things I will say is this is that I didn't believe for a second that Daredevil was actually going to die in that moment or even Elektra for that matter it did not it, it, that really didn't resonate for me but at the same time even in knowing that it was still an emotional tear-jerking moment especially when you see Foggy and you see Karen in the police station and Matt Murdock doesn't walk through that door and you see them just kind of break down. And then you see the aftermath of that when they're at the church. Even though you know he's not gone. The writers did such a great job. And everybody that created the show did such a great job. in making you care anyway. Even though you knew in your heart that he was not gone. It still had that emotional effect. So bravo to them for that. Now, a couple of things that I wasn't really thrilled with in this show. Is that if I'm being 100% honest here. I never really felt like the five fingers of the hand were that much of a threat physically. I know that they were kind of turning the screws behind the scenes and, and they were the ones that were going to be responsible for the destruction of New York. And in that manner, they were a threat. And 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 let's face it, Madam Gow, when she fought, it was like when Yoda was fighting in the Star Wars prequels. I know that you don't like the Star Wars prequels, but when you saw Yoda fight, it was that epic moment like, yes. Yoda's going to throw down. And I felt the same way about Madame Gao. So even though they had their badass moments, all of them, I never really thought for a second that they were enough to handle the defenders. I didn't really feel like it was a battle on equal footing, even though the fight scenes themselves were good. I never really felt like, other than the fights with Elektra herself, that the defenders were at any time in any danger. And I'm not sure that that was a good thing. Also, there were times... With Danny Rand and the Iron Fist, and this isn't Finn. Again, this isn't Finn Jones's fault. Where he is using the Iron Fist in a battle with some of the henchmen for the Hand, and he punches them, and they don't like fly across the room. They just kind of go down. And I'm thinking, um, isn't this the Iron Fist that basically almost knocked the teeth out of Luke Cage a few episodes ago? And he punches a regular member of the Hand, and they just fall to the ground. That didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. So I guess maybe that's nitpicking on my part. Also, I mean, Stick, to me, I know he was an integral part of what was going on. Of course, he was willing to kill Danny Rand and also the relationship he has with Matt Murdock and how he kind of 
shapes his future and Electra's future and their connection. I get where that's important, but he was just he was an annoying pain in the ass for me at, at points. It, it didn't really. It felt like, oh, let's just get rid of someone. He died. It was. It wasn't one of those emotional moments. Like, oh my gosh, I can't believe he's dead. It was more like, well, good, he's out of the way. Now we can actually start focusing on what we could be focusing on. So I actually thought that the his involvement, even though it wasn't huge throughout the entire season, could have been shortened up a little bit because it it became a little bit more of an annoyance for me personally than anything else. But I mean, other than that, I know that some people have been critical of this season. I thought that this Defenders more than lived up to its expectations. I thought that the way they brought everybody together was great. I thought the fight scenes were dialed up. There was a hallway fight scene, but it didn't feel forced. It didn't feel like they crammed it in there. So I liked how they did that as well. And other than a couple of little missteps, which weren't even that major, I thought the story was really, really good. And the aftermath of where they're going to be going with this is really, really good. And if you stuck around for the end credits teaser in the eighth episode, you saw that little teaser for Punisher. And that looks epic. I cannot wait for season one of The Punisher. It looks like it's going to be amazing. We'll get into that when there's a full trailer. We'll talk more about Punisher, so we won't get too much into that. So as far as the rating goes, I think I would give season one of The Defenders on Netflix eight Chinese restaurant hideouts out of ten. That'll do it for my spoiler-filled review of Defenders. Up next, a boatload of nerd news from Gamescom and much more. Up next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, this is David Bazooz from Gotham on Fox, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. All right, it's time to laugh like a crazy person because it's time for nerd news. And one of the news stories that came out this week was that a Joker solo movie was in development from Warner Brothers. Of course, this according to multiple sources, including Deadline and The Hollywood Reporter, that Martin Scorsese would be co-producing. You also had... Scott Silver and Todd Phillips that are being brought in. Of course, they were involved in The Hangover to write the script. Very, very early stages. And what this would be would be the origin story of the Joker that's like nothing that we've ever seen before in the DC Extended Universe. Now, there have been a lot of strong opinions on the internet about this project and about this movie. And I think one of the reasons is as fans and as nerds, the one thing that we're very protective of, and I think that I don't just speak for myself here, is the origins of certain characters or lack of origin. And I think that the mystery surrounding the Joker has always been the best part of that character. And we've never really known. I mean, there's been stabs at origins before, but you never really know the true origin of the Joker and I think that's a good thing. We don't. I don't want to know the origin of the Joker, really. And I think that's where kind of the anger gets brought in. It's almost like a, hey, how dare you decide to do this when nobody else has really wanted to do it before. I mean, we, they, there have been hints. There have been stuff in comics before. I know that. But to put this on the screen and make it real and kind of say, okay, this is our take on the origin of J- the Joker. It's like you're trying to create canon here. And I think that's... Where the anger comes in, I don't think fans want this for a lot of reasons. They don't want to know the origin of the, of the Joker. It just feel, Maybe it feels out of place. Or where is its place in this? Of course, you had that story that came out not too long ago where Matt Reeves was doing an interview and said that the Batman is not going to be part 
of the DC Extended Universe. It's going to kind of be its own thing and it's going to be its own entity. So is that what's going to be going on with this Joker solo movie? And then after that, we find out, of course, okay, Jared Leto's not going to be involved in this Joker solo movie. So does that mean he's out as Joker? No, it doesn't, because then you get more reports from the Hollywood Reporter saying that he's going to be Joker in Suicide Squad 2, and then in a Joker Harley Quinn spinoff movie that's going to be involved with Glenn Ficarra and John Rickwa, who, of course, do This Is Us. But here's your connection to Margot Robbie. They also wrote that movie Focus that she was in with Will Smith. So they do have that Margot Robbie connection, but at the same time, you're thinking, okay, This Is Us meets Harley and Joker. I know that some people say, and you see those memes all the time, I want a love story, but like Harley and Joker. Uh, no, you don't. You really, really don't. So to see the writers of This Is Us and Crazy Stupid Love doing a Joker and Harley Quinn movie is funny to me, but I'm not sure it's in a good way. And and my mind is totally open here. And, and I will, of course, give both of these movies a chance. And you don't know anything about the plot or the script or anything like that other than the Joker solo movie being an origin thing. We don't really know what this is going to be about, but I worry about action sequences in instances like the Joker and Harley, Harley Quinn movie. And I, and I wonder where you go with that. Of course, when you've also got Gotham City Sirens, and that doesn't appear to be connected with this either. So going all in on Harley Quinn, I understand from DC and Warner Brothers' perspective, but you're going all in on Joker? I don't know that we need this much Joker, and there's so many great villains in Batman's rogues gallery that I'm just not sure that this is something that we need. I mean, you look at movies that have been in development for a while, and sometimes it takes them a while to get off the ground and things change, or they don't happen at all. I think that's one of those things that's going to happen with this Joker solo movie. I don't care if you've got somebody like Martin Scorsese involved. I, I just don't see this happening. And speaking of things that we thought were never going to happen, might still be happening. A movie that's been in production since 2014 is the Gambit movie, of course, with Channing Tatum attached. And he just did a, an interview with Hey You Guys where he said that they're going back to the drawing board. They are starting over. They're rewriting the script and everything like that. And they're saying, and he's saying that it might actually be a good thing because they'll get more of a true adaptation of the character that fans will love. And he also went on to say that maybe having Logan come out and Deadpool come out first might have been a good thing, showing how rated R superhero movies, whether they be gritty or be funny or a combination of the two, could really, really work. And he thinks that that will be to the benefit of the Gambit movie. Now, I think that the elephant in the room here is still, is Channing Tatum really going to work as Gambit in the first place? Physically, you know that he's going to be just fine. But character-wise, I am still not sold until I see some sort of a trailer or something. I'm not even talking about the look. I'm just talking about personality-wise in general. I just don't see him as Gambit. I still don't see it. And I really do hope that they're going to get this script right because I do think that this is one movie, despite being in production hell, that actually will happen. So I really hope he does get it right, but I don't know. And then you've got to get new writers attached to this thing, and then that really wasn't necessarily part of the story that that we saw. So I'm not really sure who's going to be writing this thing. And, and then it's where do you go with the story and who's your villain and all this stuff. So I, I don't know. This is a movie to me that's on very, very shaky ground. And Gambit's always been one of my favorite X-Men characters, so I would love to see this. But again, it's like the Iron Fist thing that I was talking about before. Maybe Gambit is one of those characters that's better in the group than he is on his own. I would almost rather see them bring him in 
for an X-Men movie or an X-Men movie and give him a large role in that movie and then see how it goes before I would give him his own solo movie. But speaking of somebody who's getting a companion, we got news from the Daily Mirror that the new Doctor Who companion, of course, to Jodie Whittaker's female doctor, is going to be a man, and it's going to be a man that's much older than she is because Bradley Walsh has been cast. He's 57 years old. He's kind of a quiz show host. But, of course, you've got Chris Chibbenball, who's going to be the new leader of the Doctor Who universe, who worked with him before on Law & Order UK, and they had a very, very long run together. So Bradley Walsh, very much familiar with who's going to be working on Doctor Who in the first place. And let's face it, this is they've not only broke the mold now with having a female Doctor, which was long, long overdue, and by all means it looks like Jodie Whittaker is the right woman for the job. Then you cast a much older male companion. If you look at the companions back through the years in Doctor Who, it's always been younger women. So now you go completely the other way and have an older man as the companion. It'll be very interesting to see how that dynamic goes. And if there's any old guy jokes in there, I'm not sure that that's something that they're really going to do. I'm sure there'll be a couple, but I don't think it's going to be anything that they're going to focus on. But what sort of a role and what kind of a dynamic is Bradley Walsh's character going to bring into this? Is he going to bring wisdom into it? Where is his experience in the world of Doctor Who? Is this like not his first rodeo or is he fresh off the farm kind of thing at 57 years old? It'll be very interesting to see how they bring him in and how they introduce him. But given that Bradley Walsh is very tied to the new showrunner for Doctor Who, I think that this is a good match and I think they'll find a way to really make it work. And I'm actually excited. Somebody who doesn't really watch a lot of Doctor Who and hasn't really gotten into it before, I'm actually excited now, not just because of the changes, but because of what seems to be coming going forward. I know a lot of Doctor Who fans were worried when Moffat kind of left and then there was this turmoil. Well, now it looks like they're taking their time. They're getting it right to reset and do something completely different. And that has me excited to watch Doctor Who going forward. And you know, of course, me being a DC fan, that I'm very, very excited for Titans coming up on the new DC streaming service. It's going to be coming out. No real details on that just yet. But now we're starting to get some casting news. Of course, we had Tegan Croft, the young Australian who was cast as Raven not too long ago. And now we have Anna Dioip, who, of course, was on 24 Legacy. She was on that CW show Messengers as well, that is going to be cast as Starfire. Now... I don't want to hear for one second, so don't even start with the, well, she's not going to look anything like she does in the comics. I don't want to hear that, first of all, because we don't know that. And second of all, it doesn't matter. If Anna Duarte is the right woman for this part, she deserves to get this part. Obviously, she killed it in her audition. And let me tell you, 24 Legacy, while it wasn't the greatest show in the world, she was one of the better things about that show. And she's been one of those characters that she's had smaller roles in other shows before like she's been in Quantico and a couple of other shows but she's left a lasting impact it's this is her time to try and take that chance to see how she can lead a character like Corey and Starfire and let's face it Tegan Croft is kind of an unknown too she's a very very young girl Australian girl cast as Raven it looks like that's where they're going to go with this Titan show they're going to go with a lot of unknowns or somewhat knowns as they're cast and kind of see where it goes. Now, we don't know who's going to be cast as Nightwing or anything like that yet, and we really don't even know the exact members of this team yet. That is not really clear either. So can we just give this a chance? 
before we doom it from the start and give this cast a chance because I think that she's actually going to do, based on what I've seen, a really, really good job. Now let's talk about the SNES Classic debacle for a second and that on sale that happened over this past week, or I should say the pre-sale. Now, yeah, they did kind of an overnight launch on Amazon and there was one other site that they did an overnight launch on that completely screwed those of us in the United States. But then here's what they did. After that, there was kind of a staggered launch. Like I, I Personally, I tried to buy mine on Target's website. It was about 1 o'clock on the East Coast. I wasn't quick enough, didn't check out fast enough, and didn't get it. And that's part of it. Just because it's in your cart doesn't mean you have it. And if you haven't learned that the hard way yet, you definitely did when you were trying to buy the SNES Classic. So I understand why people are upset, especially with what happened with the NES Classic. And that was a, that was a mess of epic proportions for sure. And that is something that I don't think Nintendo will ever live down. But as of right now, we don't really know how many were made available for pre-order. So that's one thing. The second thing is, yeah, it looked like they screwed us here in the United States with that overnight on sale, but they are also thinking about their fans in other parts of the country. So I get that. And it's not like we didn't have a middle of the afternoon sale in the United States that we could take advantage of as well. So in that regard, I think Nintendo... I'm not going to say that they righted the wrong, and I'm not going to say that they, they've learned from their mistakes, but they're getting there. At least they're giving us a chance to get it now. And yeah, you could say, well, 1 o'clock in the afternoon on the East Coast, that's in the middle of the day, and on the West Coast, that's really early in the morning. Well, it wouldn't be the first time that you had to walk away from your desk or whatever you're doing at work to try and do something on your phone, right? So I don't think that that's really an excuse to get upset. And who knows how many SNES classics are going to be available on the actual on-sale date, if any, so only time will tell on that. But, I mean, if you really want to get your hands on one, it looks like you're going to have to move mountains to do it. And that that goes with any really popular item, like on a Black Friday type sale, the hot toy of Christmas. You have to kind of go out of your way to get it. It looks like the SNES classic is going to be no different. Quickly, I want to run through some stuff that happened at Gamescom over the past week. There was a lot of big news, and it started with kind of Sea of Thieves announcing that there was going to be cross-play between Xbox and PC users, and you thought that was going to be big news, and then you find out now there's talk between Microsoft and Sony about cross-play on Xbox and the PS4, and if that happens... It's over. I know it won't be for every game. I'm not naive about that. It's not like this is going to end the console wars completely. But the fact that Sony and Microsoft would be able to agree on anything and even for one second even consider this, the fact that they're even talking, for us as gamers, to me, this is a huge, huge step in the right direction. Because don't you want that? Don't you want to be able to cross-play? with more players on games like Sea of Thieves, which looks amazing, by the way, and one of the reasons why I know I have to get a new console here shortly, I I want to be able to do this. So the fact that that's even possibly going to be an option is a great step in the right direction. What's not going to be an option is more Mass Effect, because BioWare came out and announced that there was going to be no DLCs for Mass Effect Andromeda. There's no plans on anything new anytime soon. They said the story will continue to be told, In the Dark Horse comics that there are, there's apparently going to be some novels as well, maybe some other things, but let's be honest. Wasn't it time for Mass Effect to just kind of go away? Maybe not forever, I'm not saying that, but isn't it time for Mass Effect to kind of go away for a while? It seems like Mass Effect has been declining with each passing game, and Andromeda was not received very well by Mass Effect fans. 
maybe it's just time to hit the reset button or maybe it's time to let it lie, try something new. And if the demand is there in a, in a few years, in a couple years, whatever, then you think about bringing it back. That's when I would do it. But for right now, let's let Mass Effect die. And yeah, if you want to keep telling stories in comics and stuff, I'm fine with that. And see how those sell. See how that goes. Maybe if, if interest starts to pick up or the storytelling starts to get a little bit better... Then maybe you do something, but for right now, I think the Bioware is making the right call, and despite the fact that there are some fans that are still trying to hang on to Mass Effect. Overwatch, though, Blizzard announced some big stuff for Overwatch, and we got to see the new map, Junkertown, which is going to be happening in Australia, and I love the fact that they actually kind of issued an apology to Australia for being kind of over the top, the digital short, which I thought was real. I thought it was actually really, really funny. But you see, it's like this epic wasteland that was almost pieced together by bits and pieces it almost looks like a true junkyard and you have like these little food shops but the thing is is that there seems to be gold everywhere in Junkertown it's just stored places so it just looks like this is the kind of place where you could go have a map with like an epic raid or something and it looks like there's just weapons and gold everywhere and I mean Overwatch looks fun anyway but I look at this Junkertown map and there's just so many different places that you can go and there's so many different just it seems like it's just so pieced together and you hear the the voiceover the for the from the queen and the in the trailer that they had it's just something that looks like it'd be really fun to play and speaking of fun this one jumped off my radar right away Jurassic World Evolution which is basically a build your own Jurassic Park and manage your own Jurassic Park game and I am all about that. I go back to games like Sims and Civilization and games like that where you had to build your civilizations and stuff would go wrong and you had to fix it and you had to earn your way and build up your cities. If it's anything like that, if Jurassic World Evolution is anything like that and having to manage dinosaur attacks and dinosaurs getting out and making sure your fences are secure and having stuff that people are going to want to go see but keeping it safe, if you can meld those two things together and having to have security and all that stuff... I am all in on this game. These are the kind of games that I really, really love playing. So a lot of great gaming news coming out of Gamescom. There's even more. If you want to get more coverage, always follow us on social media and go to downandnerdypodcast.com as well. That'll do it for Nerd News. Up next, we're going to be talking about The Tick on Amazon, which is now streaming. We'll chat with Arthur himself. Griffin Newman up next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, I'm Melanie Scrifano. I play Winona Earp, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Ever since Amazon pilot season, we've been anticipating The Tick being out on Amazon Instant Video, and guess what? It is now, and we're talking to Arthur slash The Moth slash one of the best things about the show, Griffin Newman. Griffin, how you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you for the kind words. That's very sweet of you to say. No, nah, man, not a problem at all. You earned it. As a matter of fact, we've seen The Tick before in animated series, another live-action series. Were you kind of familiar with those before? What to you makes this version of The Tick the best ever? I mean, look, I, I can't... Uh, I don't think it's up to me to judge whether or not this is the best ever. I'm biased because this is the only version of The Tick that's ever paid my rent. So, of course, <laughs> I'm you know, more behind this version than the other versions. I have more of a personal stake in it. But um, I, I was a big fan of the previous versions. I got in through the Warburton show, which aired when I was, I think, about 13. And my brother and I watched it obsessively. And when that ended, you know, very shortly, prematurely, then I went back and started watching the cartoon show because I, I was hooked at that point. I needed more tech. Um, I didn't really get into the comics until I started auditioning for the part and then just went deep down that rabbit hole. But, you know, I think this version is hopefully kind of the 
what's the word I'm looking for? It, it's kind of the ultimate meshing of all the different things that the tick has been, all these different versions, all these different characters. We're finally in a climate where superhero culture is so omnipresent that we have such a context for this kind of satire. Um, but I think the other cool thing about this version of the show is that Ben Edlund, who's the creator of everything, father of the tick and Arthur, um, has tried to make this a more sort of emotional kind of human story in the center of this crazy universe. Uh, keep the same sort of classic tick absurdity and all the great fight scenes and all the crazy villains, but really try to put a very human sort of character-based story at the center of it. And I think that makes it different from the previous versions of The Tick, which have been more just kind of episodic and, uh, you know, comedy above all else. And I think it makes it different than some of the other superhero stuff out there right now in the climate and the marketplace. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, you talk about those villains, and even though some people might not have gotten a chance to watch past the first episode, we've seen other characters already introduced in promos and stuff as well, like Miss Lint and Overkill and stuff like that. So how cool is it for you in only your first season to get to work with so many different heroes and villains right away? Yeah, it's great. It's, it's, it's awesome. It's really, really cool. I mean, we have sort of a core group that we work with over the course of the season. You know, I think Ben had like a real story he wants to tell over the course of it. So this isn't a show where every episode, here's the new baddie, here's our new ally, resetting back to standard. There's a real kind of hero's journey we're going on, and all these characters have a very important part in it. So it's it's fun that to watch the universe kind of expand episode by episode. You get a sense of sort of the broadening. You know, we start, I feel like the pilot is very focused in on Arthur and Dot, and then the tick comes into it and it gets a little bigger and a little bigger and a little bigger as the season goes on. And, you know, for season two, I feel like we can kind of go anywhere in this universe, set anything up, which is really exciting. Oh, I totally agree. As a matter of fact, the first episode, like you said, very centered around Arthur, and it's been out for a while and since it's been released on, in Amazon's pilot season. So you being a fan, what has it been like to get such early feedback from other fans? Uh, it's great. I mean, I really like, I mean, I'm, not, I'm not just saying that, you know, I've done pilots before where you get picked up and you go to season, but you don't really know how people are going to respond to it. You're getting a season because a couple guys in suits in a boardroom decided to give you a season, not mm-hmm. because you know that the demand is there. You know that people liked it or why they liked it. And with this, there was so much feedback out there, you know, and I appreciate having all that, the good stuff and the bad stuff. You know, it's nice to see what people are connecting to so you can double down on that and see what people wish there was a little more of so you can go through with that. I I think we all felt very weaponized going into the season because we had a sense of how the sort of audience was responding to it, both, you know, hardcore tick fans and tick neophytes and so we just sort of use that as our compass to keep us guided. I think that the tick is either the best partner ever or the worst partner ever. So where do you stand on that? I think he's both. I think I think it's not one or <laughs> the other. I don't think the two are mutually exclusive. I think everything that makes the tick difficult also makes him wonderful and vice versa. You know, I think this show is like, I always say it's kind of like a romantic comedy minus all the physical stuff. Oh, yeah. Different type of physicality. It's more punching and less kissing. (laughs) But it is like Tick and I sort of have a marriage. You know, it's not easy. We don't always get along. It's not that we're in love with each other because we're the same person. We're in love with each other because we're different people and we kind of need each other. And the arc of this season, you know, the 12 episodes we've shot, the six that are coming out now, and the six that will be coming out next year are sort of us learning how to really work together. It's about making it through the hard times, you know? 
but but yeah, I mean, he's he's the best guy you could ever have. But it also it's it's difficult. It's like a toddler, you know. Oh, no Ar- doubt about it. A lot of babysitting for Tick, and Tick has to do a lot of protecting of Arthur. But together, they kind of make one functional human being, and they don't really know how to operate without each other. Talking to Griffin Newman, who, of course, plays Arthur on The Tick, which, of course, you can stream now on Amazon Prime Video. Now, I won't spoil anything, Griffin, but at one point in the show, someone gives themselves and mixes themselves their own theme song. So if Arthur had a theme song, what would it be? That's a good question. You know, I had a a playlist that I made. Um, I, I don't do that all the time, but sometimes with acting roles, I try to pick a song that kind of feels representational to me for the character or um, a couple songs that hit on different elements. Um, I'm going to check it right now. The one I know I listen to a lot, and it's it's a weird one, but um, Gut Feeling by Devo. Really? Which was, yeah. <laughs> um, it has this sort of, the way it kind of builds, it has this very like nervous energy to me. Right. Song is very exciting, but it also feels a little manic. And I felt like that was kind of like Arthur's inner monologue in a way is uh-huh. trying to put the courage to go straight into battle and, um, you know, fight these people. But I think that was the big one for me. Oh, and then here's here's the other one. I forgot I put this on here. The other one I have on here, the other ones, I got like 12 songs. And the rest of them aren't that interesting. A couple of them are just like, you know, hero tracks, the main theme from like superhero movie scores. Yeah. So I could get into that like superhero mindset for the action scenes and stuff. But the other one I think of note I put on here is I Am What I Am from La Caja Faux. <laughs> the musical. Just this musical number, this transvestite, you know, <laughs> for who he is and, uh, you know, fighting to, to stay strong in the face of oh, like, wow. uh, you know, sort of prejudice and all of that. Right. And I, I, I love musicals. <laughs> Um, I, I saw, uh, a staging of Lacage and then like that song kind of hit me weirdly hard when I was working on, uh, the tick and it felt like so much of the show is this kind of battle cry for Arthur to like own who he is, not ignore who he is and his past trauma and his sort of neurodiversity and all of that, but really just kind of like plant his feet on the ground and, and shout that from the rooftop. So that's, that's maybe what my theme song would be. That is so, so perfect. You were actually talking a couple minutes ago about Arthur's relationship with his sister, Dot, and it's kind of a complicated one. So how much will, will their secrets between each other kind of impact the season going forward? That's a big part of the season. I mean, I definitely, I don't want to spoil for you any of the ways in that unfolds, but that's certainly, you know, there are two people who have had this very, very close relationship. And she's sort of been somewhere between a sibling and a parent for him. Um, and has committed most of her life to taking care of him. And even you look at the fact that professionally she's become an EMT, and I don't think that's a coincidence. She's had to build her entire life around supporting other people who are in need. So I think this is the first time they've really shared or held secrets from each other. Mm-hmm. And you know, They can only hold that so long before we find out about what each other is hiding. And that's where a lot of, I think, the dramatic tension for the season comes. Now, Griffin, you were also in a movie called Draft Day. So, uh-huh. if there was any, if there was a superhero fantasy draft, who would you pick first, the Moth or the Tick? Ooh, that's a good question. I mean, I think, I think you have to pick the Tick first because in this scenario, there's someone doing the drafting, which means you already have a strategic mind at play. Mm-hmm. You know, the Tick is such an incredible weapon. He is so powerful, but he just needs direction. He needs someone to point him the right way 
and tell him to do the right thing. You know, he's got a good sense of morality, but he doesn't have a very good sense of judgment. So I think if you already have strategic mind at play who is doing the drafting, getting Arthur might be a little redundant. If you if you have the brains of the operation already in play, then Tick is the guy you need. Well, you're going to get to see the whole operation on Amazon Prime Instant Video right now. The Tick is streaming Binge Watch the entire season multiple times because i got to tell you guys, it's great. It's Griffin Newman, who plays Arthur. Thank you so much for joining me this week. Thank you so much for having me on the show. It was a real uh, honor and a privilege. If I'm being honest, I felt like Griffin Newman was being a little bit modest there. He did such a great job as Arthur and the Moth in this first season. And kind of in the first six episodes, if you've already seen the pilot, you kind of know how he gets the suit and everything like that. And you've seen stuff in the promos already, but it's the evolution of Arthur. That's the way I feel like this first season is. And one, one of the beauty things about this version of the tick is there's no forced humor. And that's such a hard thing to do when you're talking about superhero comedy in general, you see so much forced humor, especially in live action. That's not necessary. The jokes are where they're supposed to be in this first season and it doesn't just involve the tick either i mean you get you get miss lint that's involved in the humor arthur's definitely involved in the humor and some of the other villains as well and they do it without making it seem and i don't want to make this sound like a negative term but they do it without trying to make it seem cartoonish you know what i mean when you're doing something in live action and you have almost cartoonish type humor. It doesn't always play off. But this, the humor really, really lands in this show. And it's not constant. And one thing that's so great about The Tick is that not only do you have that humor, you have a legitimate good story that involves several different characters. And other than Arthur, one of my favorite characters in this show for some reason is Overkill. I loved overkill in this first season and I don't want to get into too much about him because I don't want to spoil anything but it's not just the character and how it almost makes fun of characters like his but the fact that you don't expect humor to come from him and it does and the person who had the theme song that was created for them has to do with overkill And you're going to love it when you finally see this season of The Tick. And I got to tell you, this is something that you're going to want to binge watch a few different times. Trust me, this is something I'm definitely going to go back and watch because it was just that good. And we've got more episodes now. You just heard heard Griffin tell us. Got more episodes coming next year as well, another six. So now we have to wait until next year. That's the only bummer about this whole thing. We have to wait until 2018 to get more episodes of The Tick on Amazon Prime. You can stream the first season right now. I would highly recommend it. Definitely stream this season because there's so much going on with not just The Tick and Arthur's partnership, but the villains and stuff that might be going on there as well. And other heroes, you see so many and it's so cool to see. And I was talking to Griffin about that earlier. So cool to see so many characters get get together in this first season alone. So you're definitely not lacking in characters to be interested in this show. They definitely don't leave you wanting for that. That's going to do it for episode 177 of the Down and Nerdy podcast. Once again, thanks to Griffin Newman, who plays Arthur on The Tick on Amazon Prime Video, for joining me this week to talk all about the show. Can't wait to see more when it finally comes back in 2018. You can get more from us at downandnerdypodcast.com. That's our website. You can also find us on social media, facebook.com, slash down and nerdy also at down and nerdy 757 on instagram and on twitter you can find me on twitter at james ace with them that's w-i-t-h-a-m as well 
And don't forget, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds.